one day in Montezuma, Costa Rica, we planned a big hike to a surf town where we played around in the local waterfall. Nothing huge, maybe 30, 40 feet in an idyllic setting, but serious enough that several memorials were there for those that had fatefully passed away in accidents. After sitting around and being lazy, I watched the local Tico do his circuit, jumping from lower points and then higher and higher. At one point, I decided to join him. He climbed up on the fractured rock, using only twine that was tied to the rock for handholds. Compared to the climbing I had been doing, this was insanely dangerous. I gave up on following him when he reached the top and dove into the water, but I felt that adrenaline I'd become addicted to and called it a day. That night, we decided to hike to Malpais, a surfing town. I wanted to wait until the morning, but Greg insisted we charge into the night. Reluctantly, I agreed, as we shouldered our packs into the night of the jungle was lit up by our headlamps. We ventured into the unknown. This is episode nine of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from The Climbing Zine, and I am Luke Mihal. We are continuing on into American Climber, my 2016 memoir, and this episode, as well as this entire season, is brought to you by Sticker Art. Sticker Art, where every sticker tells a story, and you can check them out at stickerart.com, and if you enter Dirtbag in the coupon code you'll get 20% off. Let's get right into episode nine. As usual, you can look in the show notes to support us. You can support us on Patreon for as little as a dollar per month. You can subscribe to The Climbing Zine, or you can just follow along on our Instagram or our website. For the climbers and the dirtbags and the dirtbag climbers, let's get into it. My newfound undying optimism that I attained through climbing and mountain culture was met with the grim realities that were painted in a larger picture of the state of the world. As a country, we were at war, and the more I studied, the more I learned about the woes of the world. There are so many problems of the world, and there is only so much access to information about those problems that it can make one feel hopeless and paralyzed to take action. The light that I'd felt and wanted to bring more into the world and in my life was held up high by Amber. The light of her life was Nicaragua. Amber was easily depressed, and her mother's death left a permanent mark on her soul. But if you brought up Nicaragua and her time spent volunteering there, she lit up like the sun coming over a mountain crest. I'd never left the country, save for visiting a couple islands in the Caribbean on a cruise with my family, so I decided to go and experience Nicaragua with Amber. I was joined by my friend Greg. Greg and I met at work at a restaurant. On paper, Greg and I were nearly identical, both from central Illinois with interest in climbing, hippie culture, and humanitarian causes. We both also spoke terrible Spanish and were equally naive about the world. Greg was one of several friends from a crew that I become friends with, not merely climbers, but just also hungry college kids in the mountains. They had formed their crew during their freshman year, my first year in Gunnison, but I was not destined to meet them until their sophomore year. I was too sad anyways my first year. 
They were all optimistic. They could party till dawn and then spend all day outdoors, skiing, biking, climbing, whatever you could name. Greg and I spent months planning the trip with Amber. She would already be down there and we would meet her. We decided to fly into Costa Rica and spend half our trip with Amber and the other half rambling around Costa Rica. We got the cheapest tickets imaginable and thus had an overnight layover in the airport in Houston. We set up a tent and slept in it right there in the airport. It felt odd as sleeping in an airport always does. Finally, we boarded our plane and we were en route to the tropical lands of Costa Rica. When we emerged out of the airport and onto the streets of San Jose, we were truly released into another world. The young American, like myself, spends time dreaming and wondering about all the places he'll go and how he'll find his way. And then when he arrives, it's a feeling of fear because he has really no foundation of international travel. He doesn't speak the language and he's on his own. That was me and that was Greg. And we were off on our first international adventure. The streets of San Jose had a hustle and a bustle and everywhere was Spanish we didn't understand and a general feel like this was a city unlike we'd ever seen. By instinct, we found the bus station, bought a ticket to the border of Nicaragua, and waited. We waited for the bus to arrive and took it all in. Hot, sweaty, and time had slowed down to a screeching halt, and we tried to put together the logistics. The distance between San Jose and Nicaragua looked small on a map, but once we got a feel for Costa Rica, we realized that our expectations for American-style travel were unrealistic. With all the anticipation of the trip, all the planning, we were a bit surprised to find ourselves sitting like Buddha, waiting for the bus to the border to arrive. Finally, it did, and we boarded it, and it looked like it had been used in the United States for 30 years and then shipped down to Costa Rica, like an older brother's hand-me-downs. When the bus started moving, some romance came along with it, and we began to see the country. The bus seemed to stop every 10 minutes. We would talk to each other and worry about where we were staying that night, and then we could just sit and take it all in. It was exciting. Pretty Costa Rican girls got on the bus. That was just a routine day in their lives, I imagine, but it was exotic and otherworldly to us, their existence putting butterflies in my stomach. My Spanish was so bad I didn't even dare to try to talk to them. Greg and I barely talked, just taking it all in. When we talked, we were worried about where we were going to stay that night. We kept worrying and worrying until late in the night, dark, nearing midnight, the bus stopped at the border. We got out, and there was a feeling of history, of conflict, an industrial feeling of division. Two wide-eyed and tired American kids, fresh off the bus, with backpacks full of what we thought we should bring for three weeks of travel in Central America, and we were surrounded by poor people offering us help. We just needed a place to crash for the night. At that point, I had the ability to sleep nearly anywhere. Greg was resilient, too. One boy dragged us away from the hordes of people, that seemingly wanted our help for some unidentifiable reason, spoken in Spanish. He offered us a place to stay for $5. We were weary and haggard and took the deal. Our hunger seemed to pale in comparison to the hunger of the 20 people we left outside. Our sleeping quarters were extremely basic. The wall was covered with spider webs and the door barely locked. Greg and I were scared. We locked the door as best we could and fell into a restless sleep. In the morning, we crossed the border. It had a feeling of sketchiness. There were girls who looked like prostitutes, and that was sad. There were people just hanging around the border with eyes that seemed hungry and souls that seemed lost. We just needed to get a couple hundred miles north to Messiah. A young man approached us and offered to take us there by taxi. 
15 bucks. All right, we said naively. Greg and I got in the taxi and headed north. On the radio came 1990s hip-hop songs. Long-forgotten, catchy pop tunes like Baby Got Back. We passed the lush, tropical countryside. There was minimal conversation, just the wind in our hair and the radio blasting the words. I'm sure the driver didn't understand. Because I'm long and I'm strong and I'm bound to get the friction on. So ladies, yeah, ladies, yeah. If you want to roll my Mercedes, yeah, then turn around, stick it out. Even white boys got to shout, baby got back. (laughs) Growing up in America, if you don't travel and roam the rest of the world, it's easy not to understand how our culture influences the rest of the planet. Listening to Sir Mix-a-Lot and MC Hammer as we traveled to our tropical destination, we were strangely comforted by American pop culture 20 years gone. When we arrived in Messiah, Amber greeted us with a wide eyes and a grin, and then she told us how foolish we were. She said we should have taken a bus, and she was surprised that we weren't robbed by the taxi guy. We just stood there, innocent, dumb white kids in another country, glad to be at our destination, safe and sound. Amber was our guardian. She spoke perfect Spanish and navigated situations to keep us fed and safe. We built a concrete house with and for Nicaraguan people. One of the employees, a jovial heavyset guy, found out about our love for 90s hip-hop and recited Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby daily. He danced and smiled, and we smiled. These small, concrete houses, built for families living in extreme simplicity, were so basic even two poets from a liberal arts college could take part in the construction. We mixed concrete, stacked the blocks, and took breaks to talk shit, eat snacks, and drink water. Chicken and pigs wandered the dirt roads of the neighborhood. Strange birds made Nintendo-like noises. Babies cried, music blasted, and this simple life was lived out in the open. I got sick and lived close to the toilet for a couple days. Greg and I played chess and wrote in our journals. And at the end of a week, filled with so much purpose, we set out to explore Nicaragua and Costa Rica. More bus travel, always the slow bus travel. We went to Ometepe, an hourglass-shaped island that sits in the middle of a giant freshwater lake. We were the only white people on a rowdy bus on a Friday night. I felt scared. I thought of our friend Adam, who had an appetite for travel, an adventure far deeper than what I had at the time. He got robbed in South Africa at gunpoint and later told me, it was so cool. I thought of him when I was vulnerable as we headed into the town where we would stay and climb a volcano. I realized I was not brave and the world was a big place. But nothing happened. The Nika people just looked at us. What was I so afraid of? What do two young college kids have of much value anyways? A few dollars, a journal, some food. We climbed the volcano, but it was more like hiking. It was hiking. Challenging bushwhacking through thick groves of plants, but no adrenaline rush. At the top, we peered into a foggy, chilly chasm and looked out into the massive Lake Nicaragua. We stumbled down and celebrated with beer and Cuban cigars. Then we bussed back to the Costa Rican border. We rambled through Costa Rica, starting in a party town where we stayed the night on the beach and then woke up in the middle of the night to the tide slapping our tent. We wandered the beach and took naps at random locations until the sun came up. In Costa Rica, I felt like a tourist. In Nicaragua, I felt like I contributed something during our visit. I hated that because travel should never merely be transactional. I never wanted to feel like a tourist in places where people had less than I did. It was a feeling that I didn't like. Travel through Costa Rica 
felt like a sleepy novelty. Why couldn't I enjoy the horizontal more than was a mystery? I was ready for this trip to be over so I could climb. I was in a tropical paradise, rambling on the beach as a 25-year-old, and all I could think about was getting back to the United States and scraping up some stupid rock. In Montezuma, a little party town on the beach, there was a drunk man who sang opera in the streets at night. He seemed to have a little more status and dignity than your average bum. Mr. Table was his name. Bums are the lowest of the low in the United States, failures for all to see in the streets of the cities. In Costa Rica, it seemed a little more acceptable. Maybe their social ladder did not extend so high into the sky that ours did. One day in Montezuma, before we'd planned to go to a big hike to a surf town, we played around at the local waterfall. Nothing huge, maybe 30, 40 feet, an idyllic setting, but serious enough that several memorials were there for those that had fatefully passed away in accidents. After sitting around and being lazy, I watched the local Tico do his circuit, jumping from lower points and then higher and higher. At one point, I decided to join him. He climbed up on the fractured rock, using old twine that was tied into the rock for handholds. Compared to the climbing I'd been doing, this was insanely dangerous. I gave up on following him when he reached the top and dove into the water, but I felt that adrenaline I'd become addicted to and called it a day. That night, we decided to hike to Malpais, a surfing town. I wanted to wait until the next morning, but Greg insisted we charged into the night. Reluctantly, I agreed, and as we shouldered our packs, the night of the jungle was lit up by our headlamps, and we ventured into the unknown. Greg was one of those people I could go into deep philosophical discussions with. We both rejected Christianity, and we were both from central Illinois, and we were both in love with the mountains. We felt disillusioned with the overall picture of things and envisioned a new world. The young man in a post-industrial society, in love with the wild, always envisions a new way. Greg wanted it all to fall to the ground, the military complex that rules the world. He envisioned peace, love, and happiness, that elusive state of being the hippies tried to cultivate in the 60s, and I guess some did. I wanted everything to be different, and we spoke to the wind passionately until we got tired and just had to keep hiking. We were tired and kept one foot in front of the other, wondering if we were lost. The brightest lights were of the stars, but there was no major town to see the lights of. Finally, we emerged, and like all over Costa Rica, there was a little place to eat and drink beer. We found a place to stay and then spent the rest of the week surfing and being lazy in our cheap room we'd rented from a local family on the edge of the ocean. We weren't really able to interact with the locals, and I felt completely like a tourist. I wanted to feel like we did in Nicaragua part of something, helping out. Here, I just felt like another transaction. A tourist that would come, eat, spend money, surf a few waves, and then there would be another gringo to replace me when I left. We left early, and I think we were both homesick. We took a bus back towards San Jose, and we found a little pizza joint we'd previously stopped at. Some of the best pizza I'd ever had. Two young American kids who were out in another country, searching for something, trying to save something. When in retrospect, you're always searching for yourself, and the only person you can really save is yourself. You're never going to save the world, so we ended up eating pizza, and that made us happy. We stayed in a cheap hotel by the pizza place and lazily watched TV. I'd misplaced the cheap brown ditchweed we bought, and there was no worse moment to have done that. Greg looked at me disappointedly. We were ready to go home. In the San Jose airport, we played one last game of chess. I was teaching Greg to play on the trip, but after 50 games, he had indeed learned everything I had to teach, and we were neck and neck. 
Somehow, 30 Costa Rican people had surrounded us to watch the game. Oh, the great art of wasting time. Some countries are built upon that. And before the Industrial Revolution took hold of the world, was there really a notion that you could waste time? Like life has a playing clock, and your time is only valuable if you're accomplishing something, earning a paycheck, and playing the game? I don't remember who won the game, only the great theater surrounding nothing, really. Just a couple of average chess players moving their pieces where they thought they should go. Arriving back home was one of the best parts of the journey. At least it felt that way. I realized I didn't want to do another big trip that didn't involve climbing. At the time, it was not only my identity and my passion, it was my drug. I depended on the chemicals that climbing released for my happiness. I rolled back into Gunnison and again, I was homeless. We just moved out of our apartment. I had to work the next morning. I'd become a climbing instructor with the college's outdoor program, paying back that good karma from the people who taught me how to climb. Plus, I was getting paid for it, and at the time, I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. I decided to sleep in the rolling sagebrush hills behind the college. By the light of the stars in my headlamp, I found a nice little place to lay down my sleeping bag, home for the night. I fell off into a deep sleep, figuring I would wake up with the sun and make it down just in time to guide. I awoke to a feeling of someone grabbing my toes. I'd had a mentor that always used to do that on early mornings, an easy way to wake someone up at 4.30 a.m. So in my half-awake, half-sleeping state of mind, I figured one of my friends had hiked up to wake me up. And then I looked at my toes. It was a fox. A fox was gently nibbling at my feet. Initially, I was a bit shocked and yelled at him, and he scurried off. As I rolled up my sleeping bag and headed onto campus for work, I should have thanked him. I was just in time to meet the dozen students that another guide and I were taking climbing. A few years into my life in Colorado, I was molded into a different person than I would have been if I would have stayed in Illinois. I became happy, not at every moment. Who among us is happy at every moment? But I was grateful. I never cried a tear during those days when I was severely depressed, in my parents' basement and driving aimlessly around trying to find Cherise. But after the pain of those times subsided, the tears flowed. Often I'd be driving from Gunnison to my dishwashing job I'd taken in Crested Butte, and the beauty of the mountains would just hit me, and I'd realize how grateful I was for this life. How grateful that I survived a depression I thought I'd never escape without death. I cried because there was so much more in front of me that maybe I could have the life I wanted. I knew what I wanted, and it was simple. I wanted to climb. I wanted to find a woman to love, and I wanted to write. That was it. Tears of joy are a simple tonic, an elixir, a sign that you're on the right path. My path as a climber had to face a real enemy, pure fear. This fear manifested itself in the biggest, baddest canyon and the most intimidating chasm in Colorado, and even the United States, the Black Canyon. The Black, as we called it, was basically in our backyard. Had it been further away, I could have never faced it, never seen the terror or transcendence it has to offer. Since it was close, only an hour and a half away, there was no other option than to face it if you really wanted to call yourself a climber. Two Tent dragged me up the first few routes I did in the canyon, and I simply held on, turning the lead over to him when I felt overwhelmed with fear. When we finished our climbs, we had a couple celebratory beers over the rim, peering down at the 2,000-foot walls. 
Only then did I feel at ease, like I'd escaped, a prisoner of fear, climbing the wall to freedom. Like a punch-drunk boxer, a climber returns to the black. By now, Two-Tent had fallen in love with a hippie girl he made at a concert, and they moved farther west to Oregon. I missed my best friend, but his absence gave me an opportunity to grow in climbing. No longer could I reach out to his proverbial hand to get higher. I had to reach that place myself. My buddy Dave, who we gave the nickname 514 Jean after a Halloween outfit he wore so perfectly one year, a brightly colored spandex get-up from the 80s, had the enthusiasm of 10 climbers. One day, when I proposed that we should do a big climb in the black, called the Cruise, he was on board with no hesitation. The black was already in my heart and soul, and it terrified me as much as it inspired me. There was a deep focus that you could attain after toiling on the wall all day. And it was that focus, coupled with the chemicals that properly facing fear releases, that kept me coming back. Whenever I would travel and tell climbers that I was from Gunnison, nearly every time they would look at me sideways and ask if I climbed in the Black Canyon. Its reputation preceded itself, an aura of fear, runouts, loose rock, and poison ivy. Some of my friends would confirm all those rumors and tell people it was basically a pile of shit and not worth visiting. They were afraid it would be popular and crowded. I never felt that way. I felt the aura and environment would naturally force people away. More than anything, more than any other climbing area, there was an aura about the black. It could be the suicides. More people die from suicide than climbing exponentially in the black. Was it their spirits that haunted the inside of this chasm, this giant gaping hole in the earth? Was that why I could never sleep properly in the campground before the next day's climb? I've heard that the ancient people, the Utes, the inhabitants of this land before the white man came along, believed the canyon was haunted as well. But I am not a religious man, nor a superstitious man, and I don't try to come up with the answers to the big questions. I'm just here. And when I was there, in the throes of the battle with the mind and body, climbing a steep pitch of pegmatite split granite, I felt more alive, more in the moment, and clearer than any point in my existence. We arrived at night, too late, drinking Red Bulls on our drive and smoking weed. We were late because we were watching the World Series. Gene, a child of the East Coast, was rooting for his Red Sox, so I obliged and watched with him. I don't recall if they won or lost. I do, however, remember this climb of the cruise. We awoke in darkness after fitfully tossing and turning for a few hours, so basically there was no solid sleep. Sleep is the magic ingredient for life, as far as I'm concerned, and I don't operate well without it. At this point in my climbing, I wanted to test myself. Sure, I was a lifestyle climber, but I wanted to grow. I wanted to prove myself. Not for recognition, but for inner growth. The tests that the Black Canyon offered were more memorable and more valuable than anything higher education presented in the classroom. So Gene and I woke up, ate oatmeal, slammed coffee, pooped, and shouldered the ropes and gear as we slipped into a gully of poison ivy and fear. The sun came up and we found the base of the route. We were already fatigued and tired, and we should have known in the angle repose an experienced climber has that we should have suggested something smaller, easier. That said, a climber can only gain experience through experiences. Everything else is just bullshit, talk, and the world has enough of that. We looked at each other with the eyes of eternity before we started up. Gene led the first part, a wandering fractured slab that leads to the base of a giant wide crack. 
As I belayed and looked up, the wall in front of us seemed infinite. The top was so far away. I couldn't conceptualize that there would even be an end in sight. And these are the greatest of climbs when one is fully engaged with the experience, having no idea how it will turn out. The off with wide crack was my lead. I wanted it, but only in the concept of an idea. The actual climbing of the crack was part horror, part beauty. The crack wide enough to get my elbows and knees in made me work for it. The Gunnison River lazily rode below and soon my voice would be muffled. We could only communicate in the brotherhood of the rope when I would pull up the rope to clip. When I ran out of rope and pulled it tight to Gene, he would have to start climbing. Two figure eight knots together, two knots of eternity on each end of a rope length. Jamming my elbows and knees in, in fear, a simple math equation, a puzzle, demanded athleticism and the management of the mind. I was also climbing like an amateur. And even though I had some black canyon climbs under my belt, I still fumbled and made movements like a scared beginner. I wore a small pack filled with a hydration bladder and snacks to the climb, pears and some lemon bars my girlfriend had made. As I was 100 feet from Gene, my body slammed to the crack. I felt a sensation of water dripping down my back. The hydration bladder had leaked and dripped all the way down to my feet. I tried to move upward, but my shoes were covered in water. I didn't have a piece of gear for 20 feet, and I panicked. My heart beat faster and faster than it ever had in my entire life. Relax. Breathe. These are rarely followed, but useful mantras in everyday life. In climbing, a simple mantra can keep you alive. The fear is always greater than anything else you tell yourself. Just breathe. You can get through this. I took my hand and put chalk on it and rubbed the chalk on my feet. I prayed to God. I talked to myself like a drunken fool. I finally gained my composure, continuing upward progress until the rope got tight. I was still 30 feet from the next belay ledge and had no more rope. Gene would be forced to start climbing, not knowing whether he was on belay. He wasn't. I went into survival mode and moved inch by inch off with climbing, one of the slowest forms of movement known to the human. I pulled up to the belay ledge and it felt like I was going to puke. It took me hours to climb that pitch. I was humbled, hungry, hobbled, a mess of a man. We still had a thousand feet of granite above us. Gene led the crux pitch, a dihedral that lasted a rope length, delicately dancing up on some dime-sized edges, placing gear where he could and running out when he couldn't. I was amazed at his skill and didn't know if I could have led that pitch. I climbed slow and desperate, already exhausted in the autumn sun. The next pitch was my lead. It was a gently overhanging dihedral with good holds. I grasped for them and my forearms failed me, cramping, unable to perform the basic task of holding on. I told Gene to lower me back to the belay. He did. I was wasting precious time, but to mention that would have wasted more time. Gene was in better shape than I was, and he went up to take care of business. He did, but the sun was fading. I let up and got off route, wandering up the granite slab to nowhere and then climbing back down. We were barely halfway up the wall and only had an hour of daylight left. I finally got on route and made a belay at the base of a massive flake. When Gene reached my perch, the sun had set. We had several pitches to go, probably 700 feet, and talked it out. We were both so exhausted that we couldn't bear to continue in the darkness. We didn't want to go down because we would have had to leave all our pieces as anchors, hundreds of dollars in gear, our most valuable and important possessions. So we hunkered down, our first benightment. Time stopped and a great darkness overcame us. 
It finally happened, an epic mistake of inefficiency. It was not like some climbing mistakes, though. All we had to do was face our suffering at the moment, not injury or death. Sure, you could die in a benightment if the weather moved in and you and your partner became wet and hypothermic. But the stark, clear sky suggested that that would not happen. We just had to wait. All right, that was episode nine of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal. So fun to re- read through these old stories and um, just thinking about Greg and that first story and Amber. And Greg went on to uh, become a world traveler. I, I note that I have not traveled much in the world uh, compared to Greg. After that trip, it was both of our first international trips. And he now lives on an organic farm in Thailand, uh, northern Thailand, and actually got to visit him just before COVID hit, and uh, he's expecting his first child with his wife, Rampai, who is this amazing uh, Thai woman. So Greg literally um, lived his life, uh, or moved his life to another country, and he has a beautiful existence, and he really, really cares about the world, and he gets to uh, change the world in his own way through teaching kids. He leads some um, groups of students over there in Asia and uh, also gets to do some organic farming and educate and change the world in that way. And Amber, um, mom, who who we call her, um, my wife's name is also Amber, but this is a different Amber, uh, Amber Hockbein. She lives up in the Denver area and she's uh, married and has a kid and she's become a teacher and she's uh, undoubtedly had an influence on many, many students up there. So Super cool that those people followed their paths, and I kind of followed the more writing and climbing path, and I do feel writing has uh, the power to change the world. All right, so that is episode nine. Um, You can support us on Patreon, and you can support us by subscribing to The Climbing Zine. All those are in the show notes. Music tracks come courtesy of Ketza and Simon Payne-Rucker. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. For the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast, I'm Luke Mihal coming at you from Durango where we just got some rain. Oh, yeah.